Welcome to Park Media. I'm your host today, Vince Emanuele, and we are joined by Natasha Erskine. Natasha is a native of Chicago, Southsider. During her senior year of high school, she enlisted in the U.S. Air Force and would go on to spend 20 years on active duty, retiring in 2016. Uh, Natasha is a proud mother of a high school senior and is currently working on public education advocacy. Good to have you, Natasha. It was good to be here with you, Vince. I had no idea that you uh, put in the full 20. I did. Wow. Let's let's start by, did you grow up on the south side of Chicago? I did. Born and raised um, in Inglewood um, for high school. Uh, we moved further south um, out of the Inglewood community and attended Morgan Park High School, um, which is when I was actually in JRLTC. So... You know, my story is kind of the um, grooming that happens in junior ROTC, um, you know, is where I was introduced to my military recruiter um, eventually. So um, that was kind of my on ramp in high school to military. I'm, I don't come from a um, military background. Um, usually you see that with folks that have longer careers, but yeah, native Southsider, my family's working poor, um, and realized that I needed some support with paying for school. Somehow my four year plan turned into 20. Right. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. <laughs> um, what were you thinking at the time just to, you know, I think a lot of people who didn't join the military, people who aren't veterans, of course, I'm sure you've gotten this question a million times. Why did you join? You sort of gave us a little background, but what were you thinking when you were in uh, junior ROTC? You know, um, in a resource poor school, JROTC is um, the place you go to go places, you know, just like in the military, right? right. Um, you know, uh, the mindset was um, for myriad of reasons. I was a young girl who was like, oh, I don't have to take PE. I can take junior ROTC, but once you're in, it's what it is. It's what we've all experienced on active duty, the, that camaraderie, the, the, you know, the, the togetherness and everyone's singing chants and, you know, so, um, and I had respect for my uh, JROTC instructor, right, which was just a relationship that most students um, had with this person because he was from Chicago. He knew, you know, so he had some relationships, I think. And, you know, bringing in a military recruiter to talk to young folks who don't, you know, see where they're going to be able to pay for school or, you know, to be able to be sold the idea of traveling around the world. Um, you know, you'll never see war. You know, this is that's what it was like in the 90s. So um, it was pretty easily impressed upon me to um, consider mili the military as an option, again, to pay for school. I actually enlisted um, in my senior year of high school. Um, and the first assignment um, was to um, Lackland Air Force Base, which is the gateway of the Air Force down in San Antonio. Um, and spent my, uh, not just basic training, but my AIT, or if you will, my training was actually, uh, my job training was actually at the same base. So I spent a lot of time down in San Antonio. Right on. <laughs> How was that? What's the experience like there? It was shocking. It wasn't JROTC, <laughs> right? Um, and nothing quite honestly prepared me for that, um, to be ridiculed in a way. And sometimes when I think about it now, I didn't think about it for years, but when I think about now what that experience was like, um, it is the breaking down of 
the Natasha or the Tasha that I knew myself to be, um, right? And and how I how effective that is, um, the whole you know basic training experience. And I remember I was a um, an element leader, so someone who was responsible for not just myself and to make sure that my bed was squared, mm. but um, sixteen other um, young women in my bay. Um, and because of that, um, I was picked on a lot <laughs> because when their corners weren't tight, um, it was a reflection of my leadership. Right. Um, and to constantly go through that for six weeks was a lot. At the time, it was a six, you know, basic training was six weeks. Um, it was a lot. And a lot of times I felt like um, the other element leaders who were white, or I would say were non-black, didn't have the same experience that I did. So I feel, or my perception of my uh of my when I think back of that experience was it was the very first time that I started to feel like a black woman in ways that weren't safe right um and it's not because I myself it was just what was projected on on me and just being otherized for everything you know for my hair um and that persisted for 20 years right Mm -hmm. um and so basic training was an it was a you know, when I hear a lot of people talk about the battle rattle and just preparing for, um, you know, Warrior Week and all of those types of things, for me, it was when I realized, um, and I didn't realize it. So I'm saying when I look back at my career, that that feeling actually started in basic training. Right. I mean, because we're to, we're told we're all the same color green. We all wear green. We all bleed bleed red. But uh, we know that that's not true. Um, right. Right. And so, yeah, it was a um, and, 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 and not there. So then that, you know, you, you're, you're a student leader in basic training. So then when you go to um, job training or AIT for most folks that just understand um, that um, you continue on as a student leader, which, you know, so my entire time at uh, Lackland um, down in San Antonio is where I said I never wanted to go back because that entire time was full of um, that same thing. Right. Which was, um, you know, treatment that just never sent like it was reasonable or rational. Um, And I, you know, when I look back at that and I think about um, other young black women who were like, man, maybe this isn't the thing. Remember, the Air Force is the least diverse service branch of them all, particularly for black women. Um, And most, um, you know, black women that I knew from basic training, we're really starting to rethink their decision to join. So that's what San Antonio is for me. I was going to ask you to go on from there, but I, I'm wondering just out of curiosity, do you know which which branches are the most diverse and least diverse in order? Like, do you know that? Oh, I want to say it's the Army Okay, is the most um, diverse. And I think it was the Navy. And then the Marines and the Air Force are sort of similar. Okay. Yeah, I was going to say, we, even in our platoon, disproportionately uh, Latino and white, but not as many uh, black Marines at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're in San Antonio. Did you say that you went to your post, I forget what you call it in the Army, uh, sort of post boot camp training is called a. So in the Army, I believe um, it's called AIT. What do you all call it in the Marines? In the Marine Corps, it's called, um, well, School of Infantry or what's the other one? Is it AIT too? I was going to say, so Air Force, Army, Marine Corps, it's all the same. 
Okay. Yeah. So ours was technical training. So just tech training. What What was your tech training in the Air Force then? After boot camp, what did that look like? Logistics. Um, okay. Logistics, which was something that um, I originally had a different guaranteed job um, due to my ASVAB, but my recruiter said, hey, we can get you out of boot camp early if you take this job. This is a job that you really want to take because it promotes fast um, and you're able to go to the most bases. You're not as restricted of where you could, um, you know, go on assignment. So I took that early um, opportunity um, and yeah, it was, um, it was an interesting experience because I felt again, like nothing in Gerald TC or what I was told sort of prepared me for every step along the way. Um, right. I didn't really, um, again, not coming from a military family. So a lot of what I was learning, which is like most folks, I'm not sure if you have that background. Um, but it was just an interesting experience, um, being indoctrinated in the ways, uh, through those first, you know, months at um, Lackland Air Force Base. Yeah. Where did you end up stationed full time at first? So first base was McConnell uh, Air Force Base, Kansas, um, in Wichita, which is the Air Refueling Command, um, and on the backside is the B one bombers. Uh, so you know, um, from most of my jobs were on the flight line or 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 uh, related to a. Um, an aircraft unit. So that's, that's my 20 year experience. But yeah, when I was at um, McConnell, you know, really when you're a younger, newer airman, they're teaching you more of the basics. Um, and so I spent three years there and really learned, uh, I don't know, um, a lot of the ugly sides of the military was like my, you know, an experience that I had at my very first base, um, you know, from, you know, the culture that kind of uh, revolves around the, I would just call it a rape culture. Um, you know, really saw a lot of that. Um, I'll never forget. There was a creepy dude that was in our unit who was about six months away from retirement, who was about 40 or just sent really, um, that he should, it was inappropriate for him to be approaching young airmen. So I remember my coworker and I were working, um, on the flight line one day and he's, you know, came by and she was like, oh, I just, I'm about to walk away. I don't want to be around him. And so her and I later had a conversation and, you know, this guy was not just inappropriate, like to me, to her, he was pushing those buttons that most, you know, predators do. Um, and I'll never forget when my unit commander, when we eventually brought it to the first sergeant and the unit commander said, well, he's six months away from retirement. We don't want to take away his retirement and his pension from his family. Um, and just seeing a lot of that in the first, so it sets this tone of like, well, if something happens to me, I'm not going to talk about it. I'm going to have to find all these ulterior ways of speaking. Um, and so when I see things like what's happening at Fort Hood today, I think back of like my very first base and how you participate in this culture of silence. And, 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 and again, for me, it was at my very first base that I learned um, what the next 20 years might potentially um, look like no matter what base I went to. So I went on to have seven more assignments. I um, mean, it was more of the same. Did you know that you were going to join for, we call them lifers just for people who are listening to this, who are not 
up to date on the military lingo. So, so I would consider Natasha a lifer because she put in the 20 years. And so some people join thinking right away, they want to stay in for a career and other people join pretty explicitly knowing that they want to get out after their first contract. Well, did you know at the time or what kept you in? No, I didn't. Again, I had a four year plan. <laughs> and then, I mean, like literally I, I had a, you know, boyfriend back at home who was in college okay. and you know, kept in touch. I was going home. So there was reason for me to come back and be excited about um, coming back home. And again, I was in Kansas, so I wasn't that far away. Right. So, um, and then I got an assignment to um, Turkey right before I probably say about six months before um, I had to make that decision on whether I was going to um, separate or reenlist. So I believe they hooked me. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was actually that assignment to Turkey um, that kept me overseas for the next eight years. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, it, during that time, um, the boyfriend back home no longer became that and meet someone else. And, uh, you know, life happens. You get married to someone that's in the military. He was a lifer, if you will. Um, and then together, you know, the rest is, is sort of history, but yeah, for the next eight years, you know, between Turkey, the UK, um, short deployments, you know, Germany, Norway, um, and, and different, um, assignments. Yeah. Eight years went by really quickly. And again, I never imagined myself wanting to be, um, really abroad, but then of course, nine 11 happened. Um, and then after that, um, pretty much um, <clears throat> there was, oh, and then family happened. I think it was right around that time when um, I made the decision to reenlist um, and then stay overseas. So there was another four years after that. And once you put in enough time, it's like, yeah. hey, if you put in eight or nine, you only got 11 more to the 20. I know. And that's when you get your benefits. So it's like, why not? No, I know a lot of, a lot of cats who end up, that's how it happens. It's never the plan in my opinion. So it's not just in my opinion. I think even for my um, ex-husband, like, you know, there were times at 13 years where he was like, maybe I'll just get out and apply this to civil service. And so we look, you know, we entertain that a little bit, but Again, um, you know, you're military to military, you appear as if you have a, you know, a little bit of a stable environment, and then you decide to start a family, and now you're providing for your child, and you're, you know, in that aspect. So I don't think, and once I got to 13, I was like, okay, I'll just go ahead and stick around. Yeah. You know? Yeah. What was your thoughts, both your thoughts and what was being talked about in the unit now? You said when 9-11 happened, so I'm assuming you were, were you in Turkey at that time? No, I had left Turkey um, and gone to the UK. Okay. I was assigned to the 48th Fighter Wing in, um, in, like I said, in the UK. And, uh, or RAF Lakenheath is the name I was thinking. It was the name of the base. And we were um, on a NATO air meet. Um, I was a classified courier, um, you know, no secret that we have NATO air meets where, you know, most allied nations, you know, meet up to do what most units do on 9-11, train. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, Mike's, you know, where was I at 9-11? I was at Oslo, Norway. Um, and yeah, things, you know, quickly changed because again, the 48th uh, fighter wing that I was based at was one of the first wings to engage <clears throat> in, you know, 
first in type situation is what the brag points were. Um, so, you know, all of our resources were then, you know, of course, redeployed back home and then quickly missions changed. Next thing you know, I'm taking anthrax and, and you know, doing all sorts of things to prepare to deploy. I remember the anthrax shots that we got and then they were discontinued like halfway through. So yeah, I, I don't know what either of us have inside of us. Maybe it's protecting us from COVID. I don't know. <laughs> hey, hey. That's my hope. My hope is that they put so much stuff in us. I don't know if you saw this meme. I'll try and describe it best I can because we don't have visuals, but it was like, it showed like the inside of someone's blood vessel and it was a coronavirus. And then it showed like anthrax, like all these different shots that the veterans had. And it was like, uh, and like coronavirus just left. Like they just took off. They're like, I can't deal with being inside of a veteran's bloodstream. (laughs) Um, I I was going to ask you, what were your, on a serious note, what was your thoughts? I mean, were you politicized at all at that point in your military career? Like, did you, what were your thoughts on 9-11 and how did other people react to it? Because I wasn't in the military during 9-11. So I'm always interested to hear those stories. Yeah, quite honestly, it was what you think. Um, Yeah. It was the, you know, my terms sometimes I'm thinking about, um, the units became deep into um, we were attacked and we will throw every resource, right? We're going to stop folks from getting out, you know, or separating. We're going to throw everything at this. And what happens is it becomes the mission. It's the, you know, it's not, you know, if you're paying attention to the things that are going on in the world, you're questioning the mission. Um, however, I mean, it really happened so fast, to be quite honest with you. I mean, I remember when everything was war reserved and we were preparing for a potential thing that we all thought was never going to happen. And then when all of those things turned around um, and were, you know, being positioned to go, um, it's it's um, almost when I sit back, it's like, man, just not having the courage to ask more questions. And I don't know what that would have done, but even to separate myself from it, because personally, when I think back, and again, I didn't have these thoughts at the time. Again, I think everyone was just following orders, following the mission, because we've got to protect our, our, our peeps back home. And it, and it, you know, people think of it like, you know, my family in New York or my family in Chicago. Right. And so, you know, really, it was one of those things that was used to, um, I don't want to say it's propaganda, but when you look back and think about what was told to us in commander's calls and briefings, which, you know, led to creeds being, you know, um, put together, um, you know, the thank you for your service, um, you will protect all of that, that the people here on the outside is what we were told. Um, But again, it happens really quickly. One thing becomes um, preparation for war and then you're deploying, right? And and, and I don't know if there was a lot of, for me personally, and at least for my my husband at the time, I don't think that we thought or questioned um, things that I hear like my peers when you all are talking about like, ah, that was, you know, I really questioned whether I wanted to participate in this. So I got out and I'm like, that was not even real, a real, I won't say it wasn't a real thought, but it was something about being so deeply entrenched. And maybe because I wasn't new into the military, I didn't come in post 9-11. 
So I think at that point, um, it was just a really thick Kool-Aid um, that we all drank and probably thought it tastes tart, but uh, we kept going. Right. No, and that's my experience to some degree. A lot of people, I think your experience, I'll put that differently, I think is much more common than uh, my experience or maybe some of the veterans that you're talking about who made these decisions or did whatever they did while they were in. I will also say that a lot of the guys we were with did have a lot of questions. I mean, I, I think the way you put that was really sharp. It's like they knew the Kool-Aid was tart, but they didn't quite know what to make of it. It was like everybody kind of knew we were getting screwed around. We had radios from 30 years ago. We had Humvees from 40 years ago. We had equipment that was total trash, flak jackets that didn't fit, mop suits that didn't actually protect us. So, yeah, there was a sense of like, hey, something's wrong here, but nobody really knew like kind of how to put their finger on it. Right. Did yeah. when did you become politicized then? So the last eight years you're in the military, you were in during Obama's term. What was your thinking around 2008 when Bush was getting out? I mean, were you excited about that or did you just not even that that wasn't even an issue? I mean, I participated um, as a voter. OK. At, at that, and, um, I think even through the Bush years. Um, and, and again, let's be clear while I didn't, I, um, you know, stand by him largely, he was the commander in chief. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, and I want to be really clear in, in what I'm saying here is that I was, you know, really, um, wrapped in patriotism at that point in my career. Um, you know, the, the medals and the awards and the, the accolades were, were coming because of those assignments that I was, you know, taking. And quite honestly, in some cases, um, volunteer for, right? Um, and so it was also exciting because my former, or, you know, my state senator <laughs> was running for um, president. And so I was excited to see the Bush regime um, lead, you know, exit stage left um, with an excitement, you know, for change. Um, and so I drank that too. Um, and, you know, would take leave and canvas at that time I was uh, stationed in Virginia in the DMV area. And I would, um, you know, canvas for Senator Obama um, because I thought that, you know, I believed in the change like everyone else did. And so I also believe that we would be, it would be a time where we would, you know, withdraw and boy, <laughs> was I wrong? <laughs> yeah. Well, what did it look like in those years following? I mean, did, cause I guess what I'm trying to get to is that point where, because now you're a member of veterans for peace you're doing, and it's not just that. I just, I think I saw you post something not too long ago or you were tagged in it, but you're moderating a discussion about incarceration during uh, COVID. Um, I see some of the other work that you participate in. So you are like highly active, like in the streets, working with community groups. Now I'm, I'm wondering sort of what, at what point over those last eight years you were in where, where it hits you like, Hey, I, you know, something's wrong. And not only is something wrong, but I'm trying to learn now more about how the world works, how the U S military works. When, when was, when did that take place for you? It's wild. Um, it was watching 
So I started paying closer attention to, um, and then I was also in the, in the Virginia area. So let's be clear, my proximity to, I was, you know, um, at the inauguration, <laughs> um, I was, um, you know, had an extension to the military balls and all of that stuff. Um, but I was also engaging in paying attention to what we were told um, what happened. And I think that's because I had got, I, by that time I was um, in, the, in the assignment that I was in, I was closer to the truth. So I was working um, in Virginia with the liaison with the Department of State and doing special proge projects with the Pentagon teams. And so when I started to see what was happening on duty was not <laughs> reported in the media. And it was also when I started to notice that the regulations and the black and white that the Air Force had really trained me to learn, read the book. If it's not in the book, we are not doing it. You know, like everything was black and white. Um, and I remember when we put the book away and anything and everything went. Um, and, and so um, it was during that assignment, during his first term that I was deployed, um, and uh, for the surge. Um, so, you know, it's the day after, I think Thanksgiving 2009, um, and I'm, you know, kissing my daughter uh, goodbye and I'm deploying on a 10 month deployment with the army unit. And, you know, I remember on that, on that deployment and seeing what was said in the news. And, you know, sometimes when, uh, you know, the administration would travel, you know, and do those round robins and have the staging of folks, you know, on stage, you know, sometimes waiting three hours for them to get there just for the, the, the optics. But I remember feeling betrayed a little bit. Sure. <laughs> and, and for a myriad of reasons. Um, this was my state senator. This is somebody from the south side of Chicago. Um, and so personally, I remember um, becoming detached, not even knowing that he would earn my vote um, in 2012. Oh, wow. So it was, it happened that first term. Yeah. And I, it took for me to be away from my child <laughs> and to see the things that I saw that I haven't even said verbally. Um, I think about them sometimes, but to think those experiences didn't stay in the desert um, for me. And I'm one of those people that came back and told the transition counselor a whole bunch of stuff to make it seem like I was okay when I wasn't. Um, and I think you have to have experienced that it probably at that time, you know, to the point of the question, um, it was a pivotal moment for me. Yeah. And then the second term. <laughs> so you go into the second term already politicized. It's 2012. You got four years left. You put in your 16. You're like, look, I just got to do this last four and I'm done. Yeah. What, what were those last? Cause I know what it was like to be politicized and have to spend another 18 months in the military. I do, you know, I can't imagine what it would have been like to tack on another three and a half years or two and a half years on top of that. Yeah. It, and then um, Trayvon Martin was killed in Florida mm -hmm. and I was stationed. Um, I got an assignment from Virginia to um, headquarters Air Force Special Operations Command um, in the panhandle of Florida. So, you know, weekend I pack my daughter up, we go to an organized event in Tallahassee and I and, you know, not that I was disconnected from my community here in Chicago, but, you know, just really having that pull towards uh, being engaged more in the social 
um, aspects of what's going on in the community, right? So, you know, taking a lot of leave, um, you know, going between Florida, you know, and Georgia and events and just really going to like organizers training while still on active duty. Look, I'm a senior NCO and on the weekend I'm out here like, you know, bringing it to the man, you know. Right on. Um, it was, it was, it was that. And so then again, remember I'm at special operations, right? So AFSOC for those that folks that are familiar with the acronyms, um, that I'm in a, you know, a building that you can't get into this building without, you know, a badge and, and clearance. And so, you know, this is the building where the three star sits and I'm in the commander's update briefs, listening to the shit (laughs) that our country is really actually engaged in. And I sit in a room with um, visuals of, of, of where we are. Um, and whew, I mean, from everything that AFSOC represents for me was what I never thought our military um, was or just was, right? And so now that I'm a peace veteran, Um, I hold a lot of the last five years of my career as like what pushed me here because um, FSOC just showed me just the wrong side of so many things. Um, Extremists um, were in my unit, um, folks who were radicalized, um, and I I would not be surprised, um, our Boogaloo boys or all of that because they talked about it openly. They um, stockpiled MREs and, and weapons and, uh, you know, so to be a black woman in, an all, in a, a white male dominated base and office was violent <laughs> oftentimes. Um, but it was seeing how the president um, authorized everything they wanted to do. I remember feeling like there's no way this is going to get approved. <laughs> and um, everything was greenlit. Um, money wasn't an option. I've seen fraud, waste, and abuse that I used to say, like, if I ever see it, I'm going to, you know, call it out because we're supposed to do the right thing. And there was no right thing um, because the culture was, um, you know, just so wide open. And I'll just quickly lay in here. You know, my job was the weapon system manager for the CV-22 Osprey um, helicopter folks are familiar with the Osprey. It's been around for decades. Well, the Air Force Special Ops um, assumed 50 of those. And so my position was um, from really tip to tail air logistics to make sure that these aircraft were delivered into PACOM, UCOM, and AFRICOM. And I believe that AFRICOM point um, is really what brought on the moral things that I deal with today. Um, Because I remember hearing that, oh, we're just going in for 30 days. Or 60 days or uh, we just got extended 90 days and now to see what it has become um, I helped get those aircraft in there um, and, and and it opened up a Pandora's box and I don't know for many people that talk about this thing from a distance but to participate in that um, man it's, it's really just one thing that gets me and I and I that I hold that um, and I put that squarely on um, President Obama's lap um, and that administration, I'll, I'll put it put it that way. That is something that is uh, I, you just really have to be there to to really experience what it was like to see um, how quickly things went in the wrong direction and things that we're now seeing, you know, in our communities. 
um, you know, devastate folks with the militarized police department. So I started putting all of that together from what I was seeing, you know, when I was telling you I was going to organizing training and then seeing what we were doing on active duty with the waste. And then how you see that that translates into the 1033 program that gives police departments the free, free stuff. And then you watch a live stream of Freddie, or excuse me, um, when Michael Brown was killed in um, Ferguson. And I'm like, holy crap, those are the MRAPs that I helped. You know, I was an Air Force liaison to the Joint Program Office for fielding MRAPs. And then when I hear the stories about how much we bought in excess and what we took from Iraq that should have never gone to Afghanistan. So we created a parking lot of vehicles that just because of terrain, right? The terrain in Iraq was different, of course, than, you know, Afghan. So, you know, we sent vehicles that became a, a parking lot. So in order to get them out of there, you, you, you send them to, you know, flush them into these police departments. And now they're shooting crap at black folks, you know, who are just asking for justice and life and liberty, you know? So when I started to connect what I was doing on active duty to what I was seeing happening back at home, um, that is what really just changed me. And then came Bernie Sanders, right? Who um, really captured my attention because everything he was saying, and I think to, to the credit, I think he's very popular among active duty um, because I think we see exactly what he's talking about and he's right, you know? So that's what pulled me out of the, um, lull of, of being a loyal um, Democrat, if you will, um, because of that experience that I was seeing um, overlaying, out overlapping, quite honestly, on um, what was said and what we were practically or doing in practice. Yeah, that's a lot to take on for the last couple of years in your, in your military career. I mean, you see all of this happen. You have the, the first African-American president elected. You're excited like a lot of Americans who are excited about it. Now you're experiencing... You know, I'm trying to think because I was out at that time, but you're in the military. We have Libya in 2013 or 2011. We have Syria in 2013. The expansion of AFRICOM. Then you've got um, Ferguson, Missouri in August of 2015. And then boom, right into the presidential election with Bernie Sanders running. And then, okay, so now you're getting out of the military. You are fully radicalized, ready to hit the ground running. What are you thinking in 2016? Donald Trump gets elected. You're now you're coming back home to the South Side from what? Where was your last uh, base at, Natasha? It was, it was Florida. I retired out of Africa. Okay, so you were you retired out of there. So boom, kicking your ass from the beach back to the snow. <laughs> you're home for the first time in 20 years. I mean, to actually talk a little bit about that because most of the veterans that I've spoken with and most of the veterans I know didn't do 20 years. So what was it like to be gone all that time? Now, it's not just that you're coming home as any veteran who's spent 20 years in the military is coming home. You're coming home after spending 20 years in the military. You're coming back home to the south side of Chicago, which is, I mean, if there's a microcosm of everything that's happening in this country, it could be somewhere like south side of Chicago. And not only that, but you're coming back totally politicized and ready to hit the ground running. What was it like to get back home? Interesting. So uh, <laughs> I had barely finished all of my out processing and, you know, retirement, all that stuff that they require you to do when you're leaving after 20 years and, you know, hauling up the highway um, because it was primary day and I was going to put in my vote. 
uh, for the Bernie Sanders. Uh, so there was no space in between, um, you know, that, and it didn't really work out for him in Illinois. So Indiana and Wisconsin primaries were afterwards and the rest is really, I mean, I became a Bernie, I don't even want to say that term, but I became really because of my experience. So when, when I started speaking, he had held a conference here, I think it was called the People Summit. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, just talking to folks and, and you know, fresh out of the military and talking about um, my experiences of what they were talking about. So just basically connecting the stories. Um, that someone invited me um, to uh, the Democratic Convention in Philly. So, you know, I pack up one night and drive overnight to Philly by myself, you know, just something that I do. Um, and I'm at the DNC or, you know, the convention um, trying to shut it down and make sure that, you know, Bernie's delegates, um, you know, get that space that we need for this progressive agenda and just happen to be one of the speakers that they, um, smaller rooms, nothing, you know, big scale, but just, you know, had an opportunity to talk and share my experience, which was fresh within what, I think five months at that point, I retired in February. Um, and so, you know, it was that, and then, um, you know, just that kind of branched off into other, um, what would you call it? Um, just workshops and um, having real deep under um, teach-ins with elders who helped me. I mean, there was so, it was like the floodgates opened and I became a, I mean, it just, you know, I didn't have the reflection that I have now until I had gone through and listened to folks who had worked their whole life on peace. Um, and, and, um, and just government waste. And so to be in those, those rooms and talk about how I participated in it, but again, I felt like, again, those stories were connected. So I think, you know, Bernie was really um, a segue into much of what I'm still into today, which is, you know, more centered around um, what I see happening around me in Chicago. So it really felt like a natural transition, to be honest with you. Most of my military friends were like hanging up their medals and, you know, decorating the office with the Air Force flag and the emblems and <laughs> complete opposite. But again, remember, I kind of started this while I was still on active duty. You know, I was taking leave and going and doing things and learning more than, um, you know, it was funny because on one hand, I'm reading um, Air Force uh, propaganda in order to study and be promoted. Um, and then on weekends, I'm out here learning um, how we, you know, need to pull away from militarism and militarization so that we can get the things that we need. So I don't know what that duality, how that came, how I was able to pull that off, but <laughs> it, it led to an easy transition once I retired, quite honestly. Right on. And when did you end up joining uh, Veterans for Peace? At one of those events, someone asked me to speak. It was a, a local watering hole. Uh, over <laughs> That's here how it always starts, a speaking <laughs> event in a bar. That's it. It sounds like a veteran, anti-war veteran story to me. <laughs> Literally over on uh, near the campus of University of Chicago. And um, I, you know, mentioned um, about, you know, the government waste. And I just maybe mentioned like three points because that really wasn't the topic of what I was talking about that day. And I don't know if you know Arnie Stieber, 
mm-hmm. um, where he's in the back of the room like, hey, that's right, we've got to, you know, and then we vibed and then we met for a coffee. And I think I joined um, right after the same month that they had the uh, convention. So I want to say August of 2017. So about a year after retiring and, and really had no idea of Veterans for Peace, quite honestly, until I had um, met Arnie. And I just wasn't sure. So I spent some time around the, the organization to see um, um, what it was. I wasn't, quite honestly, excited about spending time around um, military folks. because Or signing your name on another organizational contract. Yeah. That is. <laughs> Anyone else's T-shirts is like a big thing for me. Um, I don't know. So I wasn't sure about the whole organization thing, but our, our interests align, particularly around JROTC, because I have, I'm a product of, of what that grooming looks like. Um, and so, you know, Chicago Public Schools being the most militarized school district in the nation, um, our interest in demilitarization is what drew me to VFP. Talk to us a little bit about that situation in Chicago for people who might not be aware, just how militarized is the school system and what are y'all doing about it? Yeah, by by and large, from what we can tell, CPS, again, has um, children as young as middle school enrolled in military academies. So this is um, not just Gerald TC, which is a class that I went to, right, in a rotating block schedule they actually are in military academies that are Army, Air Force, Marine, and Navy, as well as the JROTC. So CPS has approximately 9,000 children. Um, 96% of them are Black and Hispanic, Latinx, um, who wear battle dress uniforms um, to school. You see them on the, you know, on the, the, su- on the school bus, um, bus stops, um, you know, in, in BDUs. And so to see what we're doing to our young people, so it's not just the class A's, like those young people that go to the academies are in battle dress uniforms. And when you talk to like, hey, are you planning on going to the military? Most of them are considering it. So it's an effective tool. So again, one of the things that we try to do is talk about um, uh, for the district to adopt more career technical education. Like when I was in school, all of the, you know, the guys and, and young ladies, you know, had, um, you know, mechanics or welding or, and, you know, would have graduated from high school with, you know, cosmetology apprenticeships and just things that led them off to, you know, I remember when I was going to the military, my friends were making $18, $19 back in the 90s. That was a big deal. Yeah. You know, to be able to graduate high school and go work in Midway or O'Hare. So um, we're trying to get the district to, to get a, a, away from that. But what we're realizing is that they're so entrenched with the Department of the Army um, with these contracts. So every resource poor school across Chicago most likely has JROTC, right, because of the money. And, right. and so you think that it's a cost savings, but um, I'm you know, um, I think it's debatable to see how much money the district actually saves by getting that. But they just brought in two new JROTC units this summer in a call for, you know, military out of schools. Both of those schools are black predominantly. One is predominantly black, named after Dr. King. I'm, oh, sure, he, I'm, sure, he, I'm sure he turned on oh. that one. And then the other one is in a um, predominantly on the southwest side, predominantly um, Hispanic Latinx school. Right. 
So what we're trying to do is get those um, schools to step away from um, JRLTC. But what we're able to do through some teachers is get into the classrooms and talk to young people. And what we're doing by, by, by that work is getting young people to opt out of it. Um, because they're starting to understand the connection between police, militarism, and, and how the old adage of, of if you're not in the military, you're probably in jail um, for, for, for young black and brown young pe um, people. So, um, and then the other work that I'm really excited about is through this national, um, or I would say local push to get the um, school resource officers out of um, CPS has come that through the young people, this is youth led, where they started talking about um, not wanting military recruiters in their school and then started asking questions about JROTC. And then I think a week later, AOC, um, the Congresswoman out of New York, mentioned something to the effect of pushing uh, legislation around um, removing military um, access to young people. And so that's galvanized parents to listen about um, this school. So what I, all of that I'm saying is the district doesn't seem primed to move um, military out of schools and, and bring more tech education. But I think if we galvanize the community, which we, which is what is happening organically, right? Yeah. Um, that parents and the students are going to start asking for these resources and hopefully that continues to build. Um, and then we can get a real push for what young people need, which is going to be jobs in this, whatever this economy is going to look like um, going forward. That's right. Social services and all the rest. I was just going to ask you, it was a perfect segue, but it, I mean, first of all, that's awesome work, and, and it's and it just sounds really good. I mean, it's also nice to hear that these connections are being made organically as well. I mean, as you know, we really need to sort of rebuild an anti-war movement in the U.S. I don't think it'll look anything like the old anti-war movement, but I do think, you know, we see a really robust discussion happening at the national level about any number of issues. It seems that the one issue that still remains the sort of elephant in the room is U.S. militarism. Yeah. One of the things that I've seen that's been great, if there's a way to transition as well, talking about the militarized police at home, talking about policing, the allocation, allocation of resources, racism at home, how those systems depend on that racism and vice versa, and also abroad. I mean, as you know, and you talked about it a little bit, and I, I've talked about it a lot over the years, and that's the dehumanization process that takes place with the Iraqi people, the Afghan people, whoever it may be. All of this, like, intertwined, you know, what's happening abroad, the same techniques we use abroad, the same tactics, ideologies, uh, weapons are coming home and being used at home. To make those connections is really powerful. I mean, because the... As you know, the military, I mean, it's 53 cents on every discretionary dollar that we're spending on the military. It's so much money that could be going. I mean, I also live in a community that's basically, you know, our community's falling apart and it has been for many decades. But especially after this, it's going to be a really a real disaster. So it's good to hear that those connections are being made. What I know you're not just working with Veterans for Peace or on this campaign. Give me a sense also of some of the other... I know you've been working with Black Lives Matter in the city. What's kind of happening in Chicago? How are people in your neighborhood sort of taking to what's going on and, and what kind of activism is happening? Funny. So I really didn't. Um, I think we all play a role in um, in terms of, you know, this this past. I would just say the local recent uprising for everything that is 
um, perceived to be broke <laughs> or is not working for the people. Um, and so, you know, my talent is really around writing. Um, so while a lot of folks were in the streets, let's just be clear. I'm going to back up real quick. I really believe that I had COVID after I worked the um, um, elections earlier in the spring. I did not feel well for about a month. Um, and so that kind of spooked me to go to, to not be out on the, um, in the streets. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, my role was really around writing papers, you know, news releases. I'm, I'm, you know, sort of a geek in the way that I can, you know, read into, you know, things that we were trying to connect and tell the story. Um, and so that's really been my position. And then, you know, hosting a lot of conversations and bringing people together is something that I found to be, you know, even in these smaller spaces where we have a small, I won't even say a tiger team, but just people who are vested in getting things done has really been how I've spent this last summer. Um, and, you know, being an adult ally to um, the young people who said we want police out of our school and we want counselors and we want resources um, really resonated with me because I was an over-police youth and, um, you know, young person when I was in high school. I know what it's like to, you know, try to take the other stairwell just so you don't, you know, be, you know, uh, in the same space as cops, right? So I'm one of those parents that's like, I remember what my experience was like. Um, and so, you know, just really following young people who I believe will liberate us. Um, I think this generation is really um, the courage that they have, um, the things that they, you know, are, are, are talking about is just so far beyond where I was as a teenager that it's really an honor um, to bring my small talent into that space, um, right? And so, and then the other thing is really around um, public education, which to me, um, my daughter, you know, most of the Air Force bases are in, um, for whatever reason, mostly non-Black areas. So my daughter attended um, predominantly white schools um, in the districts that she had, um, you know, been in Nebraska, Virginia, and Florida. And I never <laughs> had a worry for resources. Um, she went to resource-rich schools. And, you know, when I got back to, to Chicago and just saw, you know, I mean, I literally enrolled my child in these schools and became an, a parent activist because, you know, we had to. It's an on hand, all hands on deck approach right. when it comes to schools. And so a part of that um, led to me running for local school council, which is, um, you know, local um, elected bodies here in Chicago for parent majority governing bodies to make decisions at schools, which determines how you hire and evaluate the principal, how you spend the money at the school and the school academic plan. So I was on a governing body to do that. Um, and then um, an organization here that does work um, asked, approached me to work with them um, to really maximize and start training other parents to run for local school council. So that's what I'm currently doing now. Um, elections are coming up in November. So I'm running, um, you know, four w workshops a week. Um, all virtual, so it's relatively easy. Um, while my daughter's learning on the, 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 the second floor, I'm, you know, trying to get parents to run for LSE and help them understand, um, you know, that, that the hour or two a month they spend in their kids' school could really improve um, in a real radical way. Like, we have local school bodies 
Um, I think we're the only city in the nation that has something like this. So to get parents that might be, you know, unfortunately out of work right now, um, but those are the parents that are also seeing how remote learning isn't working. And so I think we have a, a groundswell of parents that are that are about to get involved in their kids' school and really change some things here in the city. So I'm really excited about about what I'm currently doing. Well, shit, I think that's a perfect way to end this conversation. That's about as positive and motivating as it gets. You got a hell of a story, my friend. Thank you. Yeah, you got a hell of a story, and I think it'll motivate and inspire some people, especially right now. I think so. I I I, I want to be a part of a. Um, you know, I tell folks, make room for veterans. Like we're a little funny. I have my ways. Like, <laughs> it's, I'm not going to lie. There, it was a minute to get the NCO out of me. Right. Yeah. I know. I um, live with an NCO. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but, but we will give us something to do and we're going to get it done. That's um, also true. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> So I'm grateful to have a community that um, embraces me and has, um, you know, really want to open this up for other veterans to see that you can be a productive um, partner in your community. We don't have to segregate ourselves in our experience. And even with all of our moral injury and our stuff and junk, we can put it into some good. And so I think that keeps my mind busy. Right on. Right on. Well, I couldn't agree more. And I appreciate your time, Natasha. I look forward. I know we've only had like minimal time to work together. Hopefully when this is over, we actually can work together in the flesh. But um, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. I appreciate you, Vince. Take care. Right on. Thank you for your time. You've been watching Park Media. I'm your host today, Vince Emanuele, and we'll talk to you soon. Hey, thank you for watching and listening. If you think this program is worth a pack of cigarettes or a cheeseburger, you can become a Patreon for as little as $3 a month. The link is available at our website, parkmedia.org. That's P-A-R-C media.org. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel below. Also, you could find us on Instagram at Park Media, Facebook at Politics, Art, Roots, Culture, and you could find me on Twitter at Vince Emanuele.